0: Thanks very much uh, for having me. It's really a pleasure and honor to be with you. It's funny how uh, you may have heard that in Moscow right now we have this constant influx of all these people moving to Moscow. And so it is really strange where I now, when I get up to speak at a church like this, I feel like I actually know more of you than I know at home just because of all the different back and forth with Moscow. So it's good to be with you. Um, Let me pray and then I'll, I'll dive in. Heavenly Father, I do ask for your uh, blessing on our time now. I pray that this weekend would be uh, formative in our understanding of what you would have us do, particularly in our current cultural moment. I pray that you'd be glorified uh, in our obedience. And I pray you bless our time now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So um, the evangelical church, I would argue, is not predominantly uh baptist or post-millennial, but I want to argue that the, uh, the liberal progressive left is. Uh, and that also, not only are they both of those things, that's why they're winning. Uh, what do I mean by that? Obviously, they're not paedobaptists in the sense that they're sealing their children with the mark of the covenant, or post-mill in the sense that they believe that Jesus is on his throne growing his kingdom. And obviously, I actually don't believe that they are truly winning in the ultimate sense, because uh, I wouldn't actually be post-mill if I thought that. Um, but they are paedo in the sense that they claim the children. They they claim that the children belong to them, that they own the children. They assume that the younger population disproportionately leans to the liberal left. They are convinced that the children of today are uh, the liberal progressives of tomorrow. Uh, If you remember, I think it was this last summer, there was this... um, uh, kind of internet sensation where um, the it was the San Francisco Gay Men's Choir that put out uh, this song that kind of everybody uh, was sharing, and the lyrics read: uh, the lyrics were this: "You think that we'll corrupt your kids if our agenda goes unchecked? Funny, just once you're correct. We'll convert your children. Happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly, and you will barely notice it." Uh, It ends, goes on for a while, but it ends with this refrain refrain that's repeated again and again and again, which is this, we're coming for them, we're coming for your children. Uh, And it's this chorus of gay men singing this about your children. They believe that your kids are theirs, and when they say, funny, for once you're correct, it's because they have seen it happen so many times that they're convinced that this is the inevitable trajectory of our current uh, movement. Our new Secretary of Education, uh, Miguel uh, Cardona, has denied that parents are the primary stakeholders in their children's education and that parents should not be the ones uh, telling schools what to teach. And if you watch, I think it was in Virginia over the last couple of weeks, there's this huge uh, controversy there about uh, whether parents have the ability to give input to the school boards about what their children are teaching. And the school board's been quite emphatic that this is none of your business. We are the keepers. Of your children's indoctrination, uh, at least in the minds of the school board. Um, the progressive left truly believes that the children belong to them, um, and I think it's actually really interesting if you think about that, because if you can contrast that with the way the evangelical church has thought about the children for the last uh, 50, 60 years or so, um, it, the the. the, the the attitude that has dominated the way we think about our kids is that it's tended to be to question the sincerity of uh, the immature statement of faith that comes from a child. Um, even though Jesus taught us that the child's profession of faith is actually the standard that we should be aiming for, think of uh, Luke uh, 18, 17. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, will by no means enter it. Jesus sets up that childlike statement of faith as the, the ideal, and yet we still have a strong tendency to think that a statement of Christian faith can't be tested, um, or it can't be trusted, unless it is um, first experienced being lost. Um, if you, I was raised in the evangelical church and probably many of you can um, sympathize with this, growing up in the evangelical world, um, I remember for instance going away to church camp um, every summer we had this one week uh, church camp in McCall, Idaho which was just glorious and you'd Ropes course and water skiing and all this, um, and we would do a winter camp there as well, skiing at, at Brundage, and and it was all this fun stuff. But then mixed in with it all was always the speaker and the speaker. I mean, I loved the outdoor adventure, but the speakers were just always captivating. And I, you know, like every summer, I. You know, gave my life to Christ again. I went forward every single time, um, became a Christian again and again. And um, and the reason why is because it was always a really powerful speaker. And the thing that always um, united them all it was always a guy with a story. You know, with, with a past, and and it was always a gnarly, gnarly past. Um, I remember one year it was a guy who. Um, he'd been a blackjack dealer in Vegas and fell in love with a casino owner's girlfriend. It's essentially a mob boss's girlfriend and they snuck off and ran away. And There was like high speed car chases and and all this stuff. And then they all get converted. And it was like every time it was some story like that or like, um, an NFL player telling, you know, gory stories of, of life on the road in the NFL and then getting converted out of that. And it it always really captivated me, just the power of the gospel. But the other thing that always went with it was this deep conviction that I really, I mean, I was like this skinny kid from Boise whose, you know, most uh, like gnarliest skin sins involved something to do with like not sharing your Legos, you know? And so it, it always so paled in comparison that it left you this, this conviction that I'm not going to be a real Christian until I go and fall away and get into real trouble. Then I can have these kinds of stories and then I can have a real faith. We have um, insisted that the children are not really to be trusted until they've gone through all this stuff. And then once they're in all kinds of sin and whatnot, then they can get converted out of that and then it will be um, a real profession of faith. What's weird is contrast that with the way that the left approaches the children. They don't struggle with that same doubt, um, can you imagine someone, um, uh, a secular, uh, progressive, um, uh, you know, liberal, who's disbelieving his friend's liberal convictions unless his friend had first spent time as a fundamentalist, right? Until, until you've spent some time over there, like I'm, I'm not, I'm going to make sure that I'm, I'm a liberal progressive, but my children will not really believe this until I've enrolled them in Oral Roberts and they've spent some time uh, there, or until they've gone to Bill Gothard and you know, made it through the whole thing and like, learned the whole fundamentalist world, then, then they will actually understand what we believe and what we hold. Um, no, they know what they believe, and they prioritize capturing all the resources possible to make sure that the next generation is raised with their convictions. And they're, and they're unfazed in that, and they don't question that at all. They believe that the children are theirs. Um, Also, I'd argue that they are post-mill in the sense that they firmly believe that the future is theirs, that their cause will triumph on this earth, that future generations will look back at them with gratitude and believe that they are on the right side of history. We hear that quote again and again, the right side of history. They're very confident about where the future is and that they can know that they are on the right side of history, they are on the side that future generations will look back and thank. And it doesn't take much thinking for a moment to connect that to the fact that they believe that the children are theirs. If the children are yours, then obviously the future is yours also. Let me give an example. Um, Obama liked to um, repurpose a great quote from Martin Luther King. Uh, the, The Martin Luther King quote was, The the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Um, King had such a gift with those kinds of phrases. But the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And Obama uh, repeated that quote, worked it into a number of his speeches. Um, And he plotted the points of the arc of this moral universe in his second inaugural address when he went on to say, We the people declare today that the most evident of truths, that all of us are created equal, is the star that guides us still just as it guided our forebears to Seneca Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall. Okay, so this arc is, it goes through Seneca Falls, Selma, Stonewall. Seneca Falls was a famous women's rights uh, um, convention. Selma was where Martin Luther King's march to Montgomery began. And then Stonewall was a gay club in New York City where uh, riots broke out after the police raided the club. Okay, so those, those are the three points on this long arc. The quote then draws this arc of the moral universe, which connects a civil rights movement of the 60s, Selma, to the question of homosexuality, Stonewall, which is before us now. And if you think about that, it's a brilliant piece of rhetoric, because what it does is it attaches the, the stigma of 1960s racism to current opposition to sodomy. OK, it, 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 once it's told like that, then your opposition to uh, sodomy is the same thing. It's equal to opposition uh, or is, is the same thing as uh, racism. Um, the, and then since this is one long arc, the progress that we have made as a nation against racism um, that's happened over the last 50 years can then be seen as the very momentum that is projected forward as the future progress that will inevitably be made against so-called homophobia. Okay, that's all just one long um, long story. Thus, the left can pronounce that it has won the argument on sexual ethics before the conversation has even been had. I mean, you... I wonder if you've noticed this, how when you go into conversations about sexual ethics, you go in, you generally are arguing with someone who believes very confidently, and it comes out in all the ways they talk, that this is an already settled question, and that you're just um, too slow to catch up. Because what was settled in in the question against racism basically settles this. And so it's all done. You're already on the wrong side of history. The future is already projected out in their mind. Because they have effectively claimed the future, and nobody wants to be on the wrong side of history. If you think about it, even the name progressive is chosen to imply that the future is theirs. Progress is what is going to happen next. So just by getting you to refer to them as progressives, they're getting you to admit that they already own the future. This is the way it's going. So I'm arguing that the progressive secular culture has an aggressive eschatology that is primarily revealed in their claim on your children. Uh, The evangelical church, on the other hand, has taken a very passive stance, I think. Um, When the left has been saying, your children are ours, what's really interesting, so that's a very aggressive, your stuff, it's ours. That's a very, um, um, they're on offense when, when they say that. But at the same time, Christians have been in a very passive and kind of defensive position. I think one of the, if you wanted to find what the slogan that has defined our strategy over the last um, at least probably 30 uh, years or so, um, it would probably be the mantra that we need to seek the peace of the city. Seek the peace of the city. Seek the peace of the city. It comes from um, Jeremiah 29. Let me read verses um, 4 through 7. This is the, a letter that um, Jeremiah sends um, to, the, um, to the people that are um, captives in Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters that you may be increased there and not diminished and seek the peace of the city where I've caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it for in its peace, you will have peace. Okay. Seek the peace of the city, settle down, seek the peace of the city because in its peace, you will have peace. Um, This, this, that um, slogan, I think, has really become a mantra for for an evangelical focus on city ministry over the last two decades. I think if you were to, um, I I bet probably Tim Keller's ministry in Manhattan most stands out as kind of the embodiment of this strategy, the most notable example. That is, um, here's the city seek its peace, as in serve it, Ser- serve the structures of this city, because as you do that and the city thrives, you will thrive um, in its midst. So you don't, um, you don't supplant uh, the, s- the secular culture's systems. You live inside of them as an excellent citizen, right? Um, because if you are a really hard worker, and you're, um, you're a diligent person, that will cause you to shine, and you'll be promoted, and you will thrive because your Christianity will make you um, thrive in the way that you serve that secular system. Your, your Christian witness, then, is primarily your quality work for the service of the secular system. Be a good employee, be an engaged neighbor, live conscientiously, but conscientiously according to the virtues that are accepted and praised by the secular system, right? That's how you're supposed to live. And when I've heard people um, apply this phrase from Jeremiah, um, it's often started with a very forceful assertion, at least when somebody's trying to um, articulate this as a strategy for how we should live, it usually begins with a very forceful assertion that, look, we live in a pluralistic world. It's pluralistic. And so we have to figure out how to accommodate ourselves to this pluralistic system, and the, and to seek the peace of the city strategy is a way to accommodate that pluralistic uh, system. And the pluralism here usually isn't um, it u- usually isn't argued; it's just asserted. Okay, they just say, "Look, this is it. It's pluralistic." And if you push on that at all, and you say, "Hang on, hold on a second. it doesn't seem like it's pluralistic. Pluralistic. It seems like it's actually very forcefully in one direction. They're not actually tolerating any variation. There's not a lot of plurality here. Um, if you want to push on that at all, you usually just kind of get silenced and then you'll be um, a, a little bit patronized as being somebody who's naive. Like, you, look, you don't understand. Sophisticated people understand that it's a pluralistic system and this is how you accommodate yourself to it. And because of this then, we've been, damp- uh, we've been dominated by strategies that, uh, strategies of uh, accommodating ourselves to the demands of the city Um, you tend to see like the way we structure our families and whatnot is accommodating the way the way the city tends to demand a um, life of us Um, it's there's a certain level of salary that's required that means that you've got to have a dual income family and then and your whole family starts to get structured by the demands that the city is making of you um, you're dominated by striving to serve within the systems of the city, not building something contrary to, but trying to serve the systems of the city, the schools, the jobs that they, that they um, offer you. And, and in particular, we tend to be really dominated by, um, we, we shun behavior that would invite the disapproval of the secular world. Um so it's probably I am probably not like um surprising you too much. I, I live in Moscow. Um and if you watch the internet at all, um you know that we are always like kind of the, the stink in the room, I, I think. Um because there there's there's a general offensiveness that often <laughs> um, permeates uh the room when when we're around. And I would say um there are lots of ways I can explain what's going on. There's a lot to answer there and whatnot. But I would just say it's actually like a really healthy thing to be at the place where I don't actually care that a lot of people are upset or offended if what was what was done was true and biblical. If that was if what was done was true and biblical have to not be embarrassed by it. And there's a lot of elements to your Christianity that are really embarrassing. There are a lot of verses in the Bible that it's really terrifying to publicly admit that you believe that. But I need to learn a disposition that just does not care, that this this is true, and I'm not going to be worried by what it causes uh, the, the world to think of me. Um, I remember this was a few... Um, few years ago. It was was an ACCS conference. I think it was Greg Thornberry, um, who was the previous president of um, King's College in New York City. And he was speaking uh, at the conference, and he was arguing from Jeremiah's exhortation to seek the peace of the city. And, And he argued that because their strategy was, we're going for New York City. He said, listen, in Nehemiah, when Nehemiah left Babylon and went back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem, He's, and then some of them stayed in Babylon working within the city. And he said, the people that went with um, Nehemiah back to Jerusalem, that's the JV squad. That's the JV squad. The varsity was the team that stayed in Babylon. That's the, those are the real guys, the ones that are, that are working there in the city seeking the peace of the city. Um, However, I would argue that this application of Jeremiah's command is really deeply mistaken. I'm reminded of I think it was Vodi Bacham had his ministry had a T-shirt and it said something like, um, "I can do all things through a verse taken out of context." Um, so, so, really, there's there's a lot to be said about that that T-shirt. It happens quite often, but I think that we're we're taking this Jeremiah verse and using it in a really weird kind of way. Um, uh, first of all, just exegetically, it's um, You don't just grab any old command from Scripture and pretend like that's a command to you. You've got to do a little bit of work looking at the context and whatnot and unpacking it to understand what does the application of this passage look like. I think, for instance, um, you have the prophet Isaiah at God's command walked naked in Israel for three years straight. Do we just take that command and say, there you go, seek the peace of the city, you know, take your clothes off and and march around for three years? Or the prophet Ezekiel, at God's command, lay on his side for over a year and ate food cooked um, over human excrement. Um, Now, there was a reason why God had him do that, but do we just grab that and say, okay, this is what you're commanded to do? We don't just assume that these are also commands to us. We have to do the work of understanding the scope of God's plan in human history to see how these things flesh out. And so, so um, let me explain why it is I think that we're, we're taking that command wrong. Okay? In, in Daniel 2, we're given a really clear, um, big picture... Um, image of the course of human history. Uh, In Jeremiah 2, um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that Daniel comes and interprets. Daniel has to tell him what the dream was, and then he has to unpack uh, the dream for him. The statue... um, represented the scope of human history, had a golden head, which Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar is Babylon is you. The golden head is this great golden kingdom, and you are that head. And the statue begins with Israel's captivity. So Israel has gone away to captivity, and this statue really represents the entirety of their captivity right? Because it starts with this golden head. That's Nebuchadnezzar where the captivity begins. It goes down to the chest and the arms of silver, Persia. They continue uh, being um, dominated by Persia, although it's under Cyrus. Remember that they go back and they rebuild the temple, but they still have to serve Persia. Then the belly and thighs of bronze. Greece says it's a nation that would rule over the whole earth. Clearly a reference to Alexander's rapid conquest of the known world at the time. And we know that, again, Israel still was subservient to Greece. Uh, Alexander the Great actually comes and visits Jerusalem. and They have to pay homage to him as, as their true master at this time. Then it converts to legs of iron and feet of iron mixed with clay. I think clearly referring to the Roman Empire. Finally, a stone cut without hands strikes the statue um, in the iron and clay feet. That statue is destroyed as the rock hits it uh, and the rock slowly grows to fill the whole earth. All right, we know that the rock is Christ. So Israel is in captivity and these are the kingdoms that, they are, uh, that hold them captive and then they're ultimately to be freed from captivity by the coming of Christ who strikes that rock And the whole statue is gone. World governments no longer dominate the world the way they once did because now the gospel spreads out and fills uh, the entire earth. The reason I recount this prophecy is that it gives us this big picture scope of God's working with his people. By God's command, Israel was conquered by the Babylonians and God commanded Israel to submit to this judgment. And we have to see that to... To refuse to submit to this judgment would have been disobedience to God. To say, I will not accept Babylon's conquest of Israel would have been to shake your fist at God. God gave Israel to the Babylonians and they had to submit uh, to this judgment. Um, The command then that they receive in Babylon is to seek the peace of the city, to settle down and endure this time. God has said, I don't want you to have your own king right now. I want you to wait. You're going to wait. You're going to wait for ultimately the Messiah of Jesus Christ. But right now you're to wait. And that means that the way that you wait for that Messiah is you seek the peace of the city. You settle down and you wait for God's deliverance. This was the case in the Babylonian kingdom. It was the case um, in the Persian kingdom. It was the case when Greece ruled and when Rome ruled. They had to submit to Roman rule. But then, and this is the thing we need to see, everything fundamentally changed, right? The stone came under the Roman Empire, and that statue was crushed, and now that stone is ruling. The rock crushed the statue, the rock is Christ, and his kingdom is growing, Therefore, I would argue that Jeremiah 29 is no longer our marching order. That's not the command. It would, I think it's it's being unfaithful to say that this is the, the commandment we're supposed to be obeying right now. I think we are now fundamentally under um, Matthew 28. Remember, the stone comes, Christ, and then right before he ascends into heaven, he says... And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Greece, Rome, Babylon, Persia, all of those have been cast down. All authority has been given to Christ in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. Because I now have this authority, you go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Uh, That's how the, the gospel of Matthew ends. We're not commanded to seek the peace of the city. We're told to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our current uh, commandment. Now, I understand, just to be clear, that um, uh, seek the peace of the city can have an enduring application for us now. Even passages that don't apply specifically to us, you can still get great wisdom. And I can understand how you can apply it to our current situation. I understand people making a wise application of that passage to your current situation, But I strongly object to the idea that we should look at the world around us now and see a similar situation to the situation in which the Jews during the Babylonian captivity found themselves and to conclude that we ought to deploy a strategy of hanging loose and not rocking the boat. Um, We are not looking to get a seat at the pluralistic table. That's not the world that we live in and those are not the orders we've been given. Our commander gave us marching orders with the Great Commission. He gave us a very clear mission, and then he left. And he said, I'll be back when you have completed this mission. We need to understand that in that situation, we do not have permission. We ourselves do not have permission to change the command that we were given. We do not have the right to look at our situation and say, well, surely um, Jesus didn't anticipate uh, Joe Biden and AOC, or surely he didn't understand how hard it would be to have um, people on Twitter uh, mad at you. You know, surely he didn't understand those things. No, to abandon the mission or to redefine the mission to be less ambitious is uh, disobedience. If your commander tells you, um, hold this bridge until I come back, You don't get to reassign yourself after a little bit because it gets old or because it gets scary. Um, That was your assignment, and to leave it is to go AWOL. So I want to argue that to go back to Babylon now is a massive failure. And the strategy of compromising with pluralism has failed us. Uh, we, what we are finding out now is that it isn't just enough to be a really good employee. We thought that if we're just like really hardworking, good Christians, that, that will, everybody will like that. Um, and now that we're, that's kind of getting revealed to be a strategy that actually doesn't uh, get us anywhere. Lots of really good employees are getting canned right now because of their convictions, not their performance. They're hardworking, strongly performing employees who have blessed the company in all kinds of ways, and they're getting canned, not because of their performance, but because of their um, convictions. Pluralism turns out to be a myth, and bipartisanship turns out to be a political marketing strategy, but it's not a strategy that is actually acted upon by the left. They never intended to share the space with you because you believe in one God. You believe in just one God, and your faith in one sovereign God who made the world was never going to fit at, the, at that table. So now, I'm building up to a very specific exhortation. Um, I want to make the argument that we, as faithful Christians, need to be taking aim at the institutions. And, and here's what I mean by that. Um, e- the evangelical church at large has pitted the inner subjective experience of the faith against the external building of faithful institutions. We've prioritized this internal um, faith that we have and then kind of shirked away from external expression of it. Um, I'm not going to do all the work for this here, but I think if you think about this for very long, you'll see how what I just described is connected to our understanding of baptism and our view of eschatology. Um, what, what, What we think of baptism, what we think of eschatology. So again, we have pitted the inner subjective experience of the faith against the external building of institutions. And I think this has created this divide and this tension between the internal and the external. And initially, it sounds pious um, and faithful. After we all, after all, we know that um, external religiosity does not have the internal real that that does not have the internal reality is just hypocrisy, right? If you have external religiosity, but you don't have internal regenerate, spirit given faith, okay. That's just hypocrisy. We know that that is bad. And there are plenty of people that are baptized people with the external religiosity, with lots of religion on their outside, but none on the inside, who will be saying, Lord, Lord, at the day of judgment. And Jesus will be saying, depart from me, I never knew you. However, Jesus also taught that what is on the inside would always show up on the outside. Think of um, Luke 6. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. What you are on the inside will show up on the outside. Um, back in moscow i 'm preaching through John uh, at the moment, and one of the themes that you can see developing in that book is in John is his critique of those that secretly believe in Jesus but are terrified to confess their faith uh, that they that they um, they don 't want to confess their faith in him publicly uh, for fear of the jews and he and John keeps pointing this out there 's these people that they secretly believe, but then they, they won't um, profess the faith on the outside for fear of the Jews. These are the people that fall away and reveal that they did not have true faith. Secret faith quickly becomes temporary faith, and temporary faith is false faith. Okay? Um, so hypocrisy, then, is when the outside and the inside don't match. Okay? Hypocrisy is when the outside and the inside don't match. And you can have this by being Christian on the outside and no Christian inside right? All the external trappings, but you don't have regenerate faith on the inside. That's hypocrisy. You can also have this by having a Christian inside and no Christian outside. You've got this faith on the inside, but you're not allowing, you're not, you're scared to let it show on the outside. Both of those are problems. Both of those are hypocrisies. And our outside must match our inside. We must live on the outside like we are on the inside and not be scared to live on the outside like that. And this is why I'm saying we must retake and rebuild the institutions. We've not done the work, I think, as a church uh, that we should have been doing all of these years. It's really crazy how swiftly everything has flipped over the last two years. Have you just been kind of amazed at how fast things that you thought that I was welcome here and out of nowhere now everything seems to be hostile to your faith. And it's made me wonder, man, what have we been doing over the last 40 or 50 years? Is there, is there nothing that Christians have built where, where you're still welcome to go, to go in there? And it seems like it's all gone. Um, so I would say we need to build the institutions. And, and let me walk through that a little more specifically. First and foremost, You need to build a church. And I know there's a number of different churches that are represented here. But belong to a solid church. If you don't have one, move. If you can't move, start one. But you've got to be a part of a church. Be a member. Be under the authority and accountability of men who will call you up if you're being a jerk to your wife. Um, Men who will tap you on the shoulder if you are being an absent dad and your kids are tubing it. Um, Be where the word is faithfully preached and the sacraments are honored. And, and I would say, incidentally, this means being in a church where they're not afraid to discipline. Um, that is, right now, in my mind, is one of the things that separates whether we're actually serious about our faith or not. Because when you discipline a church member, uh, you know that that's the kind of thing that the watching world will absolutely loathe and detest. Right? Um, but, but do you see it in Scripture? And if you see it in Scripture, you need to have the courage to stand for what you see in Scripture, and not be scared by all of the screaming that is happening um, around you. I think a, a brief um, sidetrack, an analogy I've had um, my father-in-law use a number of times. If you, let's see, imagine you're at the 50-yard line um, in the middle of, uh, you're taken out at halftime, in the middle of the Super Bowl. You've got 100,000 fans uh, watching and you're on how many um, TVs across the nation and you're taken out and somebody asks you, they put the microphone in your face and they say, okay, two plus two is, and they put the microphone in your face and you say, four. And let's say everybody screams and jeers and it is, it is they're throwing stuff and they're booing and hissing and the man shakes his head and, then, and he kind of shows you this is, that's the answer, and then he says two plus two is, you say four again, because you know that's the answer, and it gets worse, and it looks like it's going to get violent, okay, and he, and he, he tells you one more time, last, last try, two plus two is, and he puts the microphone in your face, okay, it's not a math problem, it's a courage problem, it's not a test of your math, it's just a test of your courage, right, what, what does it take you, what does it take to make you go quiet, to make you not say what you know to be true. And, and I think that we're at, at a moment like that, and I think our churches are a moment like that. And I, I say that because I think that's where discipline can really get us. Because you know, if you discipline somebody, what blog are you going to be on? You know, what, what news story are you going to be on? But you know what God has said to you. So you want to make sure that you actually have courage um, make sure that the measure of the church's faithfulness make sure the measure of the church is faithfulness to God's word and not faithfulness um, to your personal preferences. That's that needs to be what dominates. You want a church that is faithful to God's word, not to your personal preferences. And the other thing I would argue would be go to serve, not to be served. Go to be a part of the body. I mean that's Paul's great illustration of the body or his image of the body, is it 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 um portrays your involvement of the church as what you can bring to the church, right? You want to go to serve, not to be served. So make sure that we're building the churches, the churches that are strong and that will actually thrive. And then after that, um, and immediately after that, I would argue, build the schools, Build the schools, and I, and I mean the schools, the homeschooling co-op. I'm not trying to pr- privilege one thing um, over another, but I would say build the schools um, because the kids are ours. The kids are ours, the future are ours, the kids aren't ours, they're Jesus, right? They belong to him, and we want to make sure that we prioritize that. Prioritize the passing on of the faith to the next generation over all other ends. Uh, faithfulness is more important than acceptance to a prestigious college, more than tuition subsidies, more than competitive sports, more than vocational certification. Build a school, and then, let me. I'll be also more pointed on this, then support it support it, financially take care of it, and make sure that all of its bills are paid. Do you know that in Calvin's Geneva, um, when the congregation said amen during uh, an infant baptism, that they understood that amen to include in it their commitment to fund that child's Christian education? Um, If you look at the um, biography of Calvin, it's really interesting. I can't remember the total number of children he personally funded their education because of that promise that he was making to them at their baptism. But funding their education, not just his own kids, but the children of other people that didn't have the money, he prioritized making sure that that was covered. Um, the, um, so build the schools and fund them. And if all of your kids are graduated, then you're in a great position to keep giving to the local school because these kids, not just your kids you have at home, but these kids in general are ours because they're Jesus's. And so we need to make sure that we're actually taking um, care of them. Keep paying after they graduate. Um, if Mo- Moscow, where I am, it's a very unique kind of community. And one of the things, it just has a very powerful community sense. But I think one of the key ingredients to that whole thing is you've got some, um, some ridiculously gifted men in pulpits there. And the churches are powerful, but even um, alongside that, you have Logos School, New Saint Andrews, and a community that is funding these um, these institutions. And the result of it is this really um, powerful community, where um, where you as an employer um, can know that you have a whole um, you know. Whole rank of great future employees that are coming up in your midst and you're paying for their education because you're giving to those schools um, to help make sure that they have this Christian education. So prioritize the schools. And I and I wasn't I I, I wasn't asked by any of the headmasters to <laughs> solicit <laughs> donations, but but I, I would really no matter where you are, I really think about what is the educational institution near you that needs funding and do you have the ability um, to help it. Um, and then When you have those schools, then I would also argue build a business and dominate. Be the best so that you can employ other Christians. Make lots of money so that you can support other Christian ministries. But um, I don't think it is wrong to be ambitious and to aim for the top. To be somebody who, I I want to not just work at a company. I want to own a company. I want to run a company. I want to be a leader. That is not wrong when it is pursued with a desire to serve Christ and i and it is it is not a myth that there are very, very wealthy and successful men whose entire business is about funding the church and funding the ministry. And I, it's a glorious thing to see that kind of man getting God's blessing so that they can actually build a whole community around them. We're blessed with a number of guys like that in Moscow where they're very successful, but it is truly for Jesus because they are, they are funding so many things um, because of it. It's not to serve your flesh, but it's to take your company and to serve God with it. Um, I'm, and I'm really focusing on this because I, I think right now, that as a church, we're quite discouraged. Um, you, you see this massive deplatforming kind of uh, across our nation, and and even if you might be post mill, you feel pre mill in everything that's going on around you because it all feels like it's falling apart. But I want to argue, God's word says we win. All right? If you see it in the text, that's all you need. You don't need to see it around you. If you see it in the text, then it's there. Jesus said, go establish dominion here. Pray that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the way it's going to happen is by the spreading of the gospel. So we don't need to be rattled by all the things that are happening around us. We need to be ambitious in actually building the, th- the, the institutions that we should have built uh, 50 or 60 years ago. Let me close um With this uh, last observation, um, this is my my Hebrew geek uh, coming on. Um, The Hebrew word for um, speaking a proverb, it's really interesting when you, um, the the Hebrew has a verb just for to speak a proverb. Uh, The verb is mashal. When somebody's mashaling, they're speaking Proverbs. Uh, when you speak a wise proverb, you mashal. Uh, to have the wisdom of Proverbs, to understand scripture and the way the world works is mashal. Like when you can unpack a riddle and and, and have biblical wisdom, that's mashal. Um, if you have the wisdom of Proverbs, which I think um, Proverbs 8 um, tells us is to have Christ, then you have mashal, right? You, you have true wisdom. But what's really interesting is that the Hebrew verb mashal has a second meaning. Um, It means to rule as a king. Um, When you sit on a throne and you rule, you are mashaling. I don't think it's a coincidence that this one verb has these two meanings. When you have the wisdom of Christ, when when you have what God has given us here, and it informs your every decision, all right? When you have the wisdom of Christ, you are called to rule as a king on this earth. You're called to be the kind of person that others come to you to ask you to solve their problems. You're the kind of person that's supposed to be making wise decisions and helping people understand what God's justice looks like. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ, our rock, who has struck the nations and crumbled them right? And he is ours. We have that wisdom, and we are called to rule because of it. So he says, go, therefore, disciple the nations. Go, therefore, disciple the nations. The future is ours because the kids are ours. Let me pray. Father, we again thank you so much for what you have given us in Christ, and pray that we would um, learn that great discipline of learning to look to him, and to look to him only, and to not be distracted by uh, the waves that threaten to, 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 drag us under and all of the crowds that, that threaten to drown us out. Pray that we would look to Christ and to Christ alone and that we would take all of our orders from him and from him alone. Praisings in Jesus' name. Amen.